Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, and welcome back to Brussels Bytes, the podcast on technology and European policy. In today's episode, we'll focus on online disinformation, regulating digital companies, and the threats of election interference online, with a special focus on the upcoming German federal election later this year. We have many exciting points to cover in today's conversation, so let's jump right in. Felix, it's a pleasure to welcome you in our podcast. Thank you so much. The voice you, the voice you heard just now is the one of Felix Kate, our today's guest. He is part of Reset, a company which wants to change the way the internet prioritizes the spread of news and information. In Reset, Felix is in charge of shaping and rolling out a grant-making and advocacy strategy for Germany, with a strong focus on helping increase the resilience of Germany's upcoming digital election campaign. Previously, Felix was a policy officer at the European External Action Service, where he helped shape the EU's agenda on online disinfo and countering digital threats. Last time we met in person was while you were working for the European External Action Service um, and you were personally involved in coordination among member states before the European Parliament election in 2019. And you were working on bolstering our common defenses against disinfo, so to speak. I'm sure that this was quite a challenging, interesting time. Can you tell us a bit more? Sure. Um... It was a challenging time, you're right there. Um, it was difficult because there was among among the member state community and, and the crowd in Brussels, there was a strong common threat awareness, so to say. Uh, European elections most obviously by their nature affect all of Europe. Uh, so we had a common vulnerability there, so to say. Um, However, the way that member states uh, from the Baltics and Nordics to, to Germany or, or Spain and Malta uh, perceive disinformation and how they approach it is, is very different, very diverse. Um, naturally, I would say like countries more and more towards the eastern borders of the EU uh, have have a much uh, stronger focus on, on Russian interference and uh, Russia's ongoing disinformation campaign. Whereas um, Germany, for instance, my own country um, is also a target, but is just not so aware of this problem. Or some would argue uh, on a more sarcastic note, uh, that German policymakers don't want to be aware that they ignore the issue. Um, so it was it was a very challenging context to try and and facilitate more uh, cooperation among member states um, because you also have to keep in mind that the management of elections is is fully like a member state prerogative. It's uh, their competence and all. Um, all cooperation on these issues is voluntary, so to say. So what we tried back then was to um, to build an information sharing system uh, for for member states, the so-called rapid alert system, uh, to to help them just 
detect and share insights on trends, ongoing disinformation campaigns, all of that. It was with mixed results, I would say. Uh, there was some level of engagement among those member states who usually are active on these issues, the ones I just mem uh, mentioned. And then um, there were others, yeah, lagging behind a little bit, I would say. Uh, so it, it was... It was, in the end, I would say successful. We got member states to talk to each other more, um, but there is a lot of work to be done still in, yeah, in developing a coherent and strong European approach on disinformation and, and election interference. Yeah, this has been a, a big topic around the Brussels bubble for quite a while now. And when you read opinions by experts, when you talk to the community, usually people stress out that the European External Action Service either is a underfunded when it comes to this info or that member states don't really want to talk to each other because it's very sensitive. Is this, is this correct? Or you saw also something else which, which stands in the way? I think both are correct, to be perfectly honest. Yes, um, of course, uh, the EAS STRATCOM division, the teams working specifically on Russian disinformation are uh, terribly underfunded. If we look at the, the budget, for instance, that the Kremlin uh, puts into its own disinformation campaigns, its own like state-controlled media like Russia Today and Sputnik, uh, it's, uh, I don't know the details, my former colleagues would know much better, but it's over a, a billion euros per year, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, the Stratcom division operated, I think, on like two to three million euros. Uh, so which, which, which came after the parliament basically fought for allocating this budget line. So that's a great comparison. One billion from the likes of Sputnik and RT compared to our, our measly budget. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Very, very quick follow-up. Uh, recently, the High Representative Borrell mentioned that the European External Action Service doesn't have the resources or maybe even the mandate to tackle Chinese disinfo. We've been talking a lot about Russian propaganda online, but China is also picking up from the Kremlin playbook on disinfo. What do you think about Chinese um, election interference and propaganda online? Um I, I am not sure that we can really say that it's the exact same playbook. Uh, it's certainly clear that both uh, governments run information operations and influence campaigns targeting other countries, including Europe. Um, I still think that when it comes to like standard election interference, that uh, the Kremlin is probably more aggressive than Beijing. Um, but yeah, it is, a, it is a huge issue nonetheless, and it's absolutely correct to say that the EAS does not have a clear mandate from the member states uh, to tackle Chinese disinformation. And against that backdrop, of course, uh, yeah, it, it is a bit of a, a tricky task then to, to address this issue because you need strong political backing uh, in order to carry out such a such a job that doesn't come without risks. And um, yeah, I, I think that this is something that the member states should uh, give to, to people working at the EAS and doing this crucial work that give them a very strong mandate and political backing for their work. <laughs> Fingers crossed on that one, yeah. Well, let's um, fast forward to your um, current job in Reset.Tech. It's a very interesting company, I think a new one. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about your current work and the mission of Reset Tech. Yeah, uh, sure. So um, 
I think we consider ourselves more an NGO than a company, so we don't uh, make profits. Uh, but uh, indeed, we are new, and I think our work is uh, quite exciting. Um, I think our key motivation for entering this space of a tech policy is to see this imbalance of of uh, yeah of interest representation and influence in the whole uh, lobbying sphere because of course when it comes to like platform regulation for instance one of our key concerns we have seen a very vocal and strong big tech lobby also a very strong and vocal uh, publishers lobby if we think about the whole copyright uh, battle for instance but um yeah uh, fundamental rights and democracy and ultimately also the interests of users are are chronically underrepresented still and basically helping uh strengthen a little bit uh here and there federating the the civil society fund uh funding and connecting uh, amazing researchers and making sure that uh, their work also is seen and heard and taken into account by policymakers is, is something that we're doing and that I think is very gratifying and important. And you were and quite quite vocal um, after the the insurrection, let's let's call it insurrection in, in Capitol Hill beginning of the year. What really happened there? And do you really think that online propaganda was a kicker there and online hate was a kicker there? I just saw a recent report by Avas, um, which basically says that more than 10 billion of hateful online posts could have been prevented by Facebook and people could have been exposed to way more or less uh, hate and incitement online. Take us through what really happened in January in, in a few sentences. So I think, yes, indeed, it's difficult to draw like these uh, linear uh, causal uh, explanations and now blame it all on the platforms. Um, because I mean, conspiracy thinking has always existed. And uh, I think a lot of sociologists also say that filter bubbles, echo chambers existed before the internet already. Um, but what we see is, I think the firstly the large scale um, amplification of that kind of content because what we saw ahead of the of the insurrection in the U.S., for instance, is that Facebook's own recommendation algorithms massively increased uh, increased uh, the reach of of inciting and hateful content content that called for violence against like political candidates against Kamala Harris and others, uh, and they very clearly don't have their recommender systems, their algorithms under control. And they don't want to because um, sensationalist and hateful content is what brings them ad revenue. It's uh, what makes people uh, click and gets them hooked on the platform basically. So there's a perverse incentive, I think, for, for these companies to actually spread and distribute uh, content that is very clearly against the public interest. And that's what we saw there in, in DC happening live. Yeah, that's that's a great argument, by the way. When, when you say, I've been involved in these debates a lot, people saying, oh, we've had propaganda for such a long time. We have like, we had this info in ancient Rome. People were printing like fake, uh, uh, I don't know, pamphlets and even fake uh, information, you name it. But the thing is that right now, because of target algorithms, 
because of, of targeted advertisement and all the insights these companies have on, on people's, people's beliefs, people's political leanings, basically the algorithms know how to engage with people and what makes them tick. So this is why I think for the general public, we should convey the message that we are in a new situation. We are, you know, the, the goalposts have been have been moved, right? I I completely agree, and I um, I find this trend scary. Uh, this increasing fra uh, fragmentation of of and commercialization of public sphere, and what I often realize is um, that I think I am caught in my own filter bubble already, without even realizing, and uh, it makes it so difficult to have constructive. Um, yeah, dialogue across communities and to basically engage for for a common cause. Um, yeah, because we don't have a common reception of uh, of reality anymore. Yeah, I mean, upon that, I really find it almost agonizing that in 2021 we continue to have the same conversation as if it's 2016, right? Remember the never again moment after Cambridge Analytica and all the related relevations about social media companies, filter bubbles. But it seems as if we're stuck in Groundhog Day when it comes to improving the responsibility of digital companies or making sure that their business model doesn't monetize from hate and disinfo. So I hope that five years later, policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic realize that self-regulation doesn't really deliver when we talk about digital companies. Let's maybe move the conversation a bit more to European policy um, and actual legislation. Bearing in mind all of the things we just said and mentioned, are you optimistic that the EU's new efforts when it comes to the Digital Services Act or the Action Plan for Democracy, are they going to bear fruit? Um, that depends on a lot of factors, I think. I think the Commission's initial proposal for the Digital Services Act, for instance, is very promising. It has a lot of potential. What I like about it is that it does not only contain um, EU-wide coherent rules for handling illegal content, but that for the first time, in my view, it also um, aspires to make tech platforms accountable for the broader effects they have on democracy and fundamental rights. And if I don't misread the proposal, it basically wants to shift or reverse the, the, the burden of proof and basically uh, oblige the companies to um, to make clear to report uh, in in uh, in the form of um, regular risk assessments what they are doing to prevent uh, to prevent uh, such occurrences such as the insurrection in the U.S. and other uh, yeah manipulative techniques and campaigns that uh, risk jeopardizing people's fundamental rights and specifically their rights to hold free and fair elections. And I, yeah, uh, it depends on a lot of variables, but I think the potential is there. It's very important now to keep raising awareness among member states as well that the DSA should not only be about illegal content, but also needs to address, uh, yeah, fundamental rights and uh, transparency for users um, more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But we also know that this type of legislation will surely take some time before it's adopted and will be also under an intense lobbying effort. So maybe there's a couple of years ahead before we actually see any actual legislation uh, taking hold. If you were to pick, let's say, two or three most important steps or reforms, if you have a personal wish list, 
when it comes to what needs to be done, what would you say? What, what Number a couple of measures which need to be implemented right now. So I totally agree with you. It will take time. And uh, there's still a lot of like rigor room for the tech lobby to water down the proposals, unfortunately. However, uh, um, Executive Vice President Bestager and I think also the, the French uh, upcoming French presidency said that they want to see adoption in, in spring of 2022. So that may be a little bit ambitious, but it would be a, a, a great timeline in my view. I would be very happy if that were to become reality. Um, Still, what can we do in the meantime? Um, the, I agree that self-regulation hasn't worked, but however, now with um, hard regulation on the horizon, I think there is a, I mean, self-regulation is a whole new ballgame. And I think the commission with the ongoing revision of the code of practice on disinformation, which was one of these self-regulatory tools, um, yeah, has a very powerful instrument to push the platforms to make more concessions, to act with more due diligence uh, on disinformation, to provide more data and insights to election authorities, to researchers, to every single user, uh, to make sure that uh, hate speech and uh, other like malicious content doesn't uh, fester on, on their services as much. So I think that um, this is uh, a promising approach and I'm ho I hope that the commission will manage to get the most out of these discussions with the platforms on the revised code of practice on disinformation. And all of these debates on regulating digital companies, they inevitably lead to confrontation about free speech. Do you think that Europe can advocate and implement a balanced solution when it comes to this? Um, and especially when we, when we talk with our American counterparts, are we destined to diverge with the US on content moderation and, and free speech on this forever? <laughs> I am, yeah, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I have, uh, to start with your first question, I always have the um, impression that the US and the EU have quite different uh, conceptions of free speech. Um, I think that we have a more nuanced approach in Europe and um, this dichotomy uh, between regulation and uh, free speech, in my view, is a false one. It's a misleading one because I believe very firmly that we need regulation to make sure that all citizens in Europe can enjoy uh, free speech and their other fundamental rights in the first place. For instance, we see that amplified hate and large-scale disinformation campaigns uh, boosted by the platform's own algorithms, they uh, crowd vulnerable communities out of uh, public discourse, for instance. Um, they, they silence uh, marginal voices. And uh, I think that uh, we have a strong interest in diversity of opinions and diversity of information in online space. And um, therefore, I'm convinced that we need regulation uh, to, to, yeah, to make free speech a reality online in the first place and to protect every single user's speech rights as well vis-a-vis -vis the companies. Because currently, basically, Facebook can take down any of my own posts or opinions uh, that I share with others online without owing me any form of, of explanation. And I cannot basically really appeal to such a decision. There is uh, no like legally sanctioned mechanism to do that at the moment. So this is also something that the Digital Services Act wants to, uh, yeah, to establish basically. Uh, 
under the headline of due diligence uh, obligations to force the platforms to um, be more um, diligent, more cautious and more transparent in how they handle our own speech. So here again, I think it's very clear. We need regulation to protect free speech. That's an excellent point. And talking about transparency, talking about people's voices online and offline, maybe let's let's move to a very important topic as well, the upcoming German elections in the autumn. And you yourself have been quite vocal lately that there's a lot of digital threats and potential election interference maybe in, in, in the run-up until September uh, 2021. What makes you so concerned about the vote? Is it only about the responsibilities of digital companies? Is it about malign third country influence? Is it the mix of all that? Why are you anxious? Why am I anxious? That's a bigger question, Dimitri. <laughs> we, need a, we need a few more podcasts for that one. Um, but no, it is a very justified question. What I um, am worried about sometimes in... Um, in Germany is that there seems to be a fixation on the polling results of our far-right party, the Alternative for Deutschland AfD. And um, I really think that it's important that they that we manage to level them in a way um, and their, their results. But um, this is not the only indicator for the health of democracy. And it's not the only place we should be looking. Um, because yes, we have uh, a proportionate voting system. We have a a very consensus-driven political culture, which are great buffers to radicalization and disinformation. But still, I mean, there are other factors we have to look at. Uh, a German, an amazing German think tank called Stiftung Neue Verantwortung, they published a study uh, earlier this week, a very comprehensive um, representative study, which showed that up to 50% uh, of Germans are partly or fully convinced that the media and um, the politicians lie to them systematically and intentionally. And this decay of trust is... We're, we're talking about Germany, 50% of, of Germans, right? Yes, yes, of Germans. Uh, can you believe it? And uh, this decay of trust is, I think, very, very dangerous for democracy, probably more dangerous than like 2% more or less of uh, IFD results in the polls. And uh, it's not something we're like um, systematically gauging and thinking about. And it is a direct consequence, I think, of uh, completely detached uh, filter bubble realities uh, that are driven by, by and nourished by uh, amplified disinformation. So, but you your think question was broader. I, 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 no, let's let's focus on the elections because this, this is a great point. How how all of these processes? How can they actually jeopardize the election? Okay, one point is people um, mistrusting media. How can this actually be a bad thing for for the September election? So the thing is that I don't only. Um, personally care so much again about the election results i also care very much about the process and uh, people have a right for instance that's also in the german constitution um but also in international law to uh yeah to take a decision and to vote free from manipulation and undue interference 
And uh, if people are systematically manipulated, be it by platform targeting systems and algorithms or by far-right uh, disinformation campaigns or Russian disinformation campaigns, their, um, their right uh, to, to take this decision in like... Uh, yeah, in a sovereign way and free from manipulation and interference is jeopardized, it's threatened. And uh, the, in my view, the whole democratic process uh, loses legitimacy and that's very problematic. Yeah, and maybe, maybe adding my own point, which I've been struggling with for, for a long time now, is that when it comes to digital advertisement in, in elections, let's say we every European member state has a very, very strict written uh, rule book when it comes to advertisement, uh, right of response, labeling ads or political statements as such during a campaign. But in many European member states, when we talk about digital ads on, on Facebook, even YouTube videos, it's, it's complete chaos. There is no accountability. You don't really know who, where, what, when spend the money on this. And it's as if that we're still living in the 20th century when political advertisement is only on, I don't know, radio and, and TV ads. Yeah, that is completely right. I totally agree. And I think we have to, like, it's, it's even worse. Uh, it's not just about what Facebook likes to call political ads because basically all content on on the platforms is is distributed by the same commercial logic and distributed by the same optimization uh, optimization algorithms that nobody has any insight to and that are definitely not coded in in line with public values but only with like yeah maximization of of clicks and uh, advertising revenue um so indeed i think um this is a commercialization of of the information ecosystem, which is critical for, for elections uh, and for democratic will, will formation overall. And um, I don't think there's like a silver bullet or an easy solution, but there needs to be more transparency and there needs to be systematic scrutiny of how these, uh, yeah, of how this technology works and how it impacts, uh, yeah, our democracy. Um, and in addition, I think we also, if we talk about sponsored content, uh, which is something the commission is also working on, new legislation on uh, sponsored political content online, we again have to look beyond just Facebook ads because there are a lot of other ways in which political actors are spending money in uh, online to um, to influence or you could say distort uh, political views and uh, win over voters. So uh, what we see, of course, is massive use of, of paid likes and followers um, that's used on all sides of the, the spectrum, but mostly again, like in the more in the far right spectrum, um, where people like, where they use such like inauthentic behavior and uh, fake accounts to uh, push um, content uh, that looks organic uh, in news feeds and make people think that certain often extreme positions are extremely popular with the rest of society, even though this is completely like deceptive and inauthentic. Uh, and then, of course, we have the issue of sponsoring influencers, basically uh, paying people, bloggers money um, to promote certain political stances on Facebook or, or YouTube, uh, without uh, anybody uh, or the consumer, the, the viewer, the user uh, learning about this commercial relationship. And yeah, uh, that's another uh, critical issue where we need more transparency from the platforms. Picking up on, on transparency and 
inauthentic, con inauthentic content and what exactly is authentic online. Let's not maybe go into the existentialist philosophical rhetoric, but these are great points. And maybe in closing of our great conversation, let's shift the angle here. How can we actually boost societal awareness and make sure that we pre prepare people, citizens, even children? Um, what can we do in terms of education? so that people can develop natural filters against disinformation or spotting all of these nefarious tools or, or influence endeavors. I, I think there's a great example with the Baltics uh, because these guys, Lithuania and Estonia especially, are under constant daily digital barrage from Russia when it comes to disinformation propaganda. And they've been running fantastic grassroots campaigns involving civil society, even in education, media literacy, making sure that their population, which is, of course, relatively small compared to, let's say, Germany, of course, but making sure that citizens are prepared and they actually have a natural filter in their heads when they're picking up on this on this content. What can we do um, in, in Europe when it comes to education or involvement of, of uh, citizens, civil society on this? What do you think? So there, there are so many angles to look at this question. Uh, I think you're completely right that um, people like me probably obsess a little bit too much with regulation and policymaking and that we have to always look at other solutions as well or other solution streams. I completely agree. And I think that media literacy uh, in schools already is incredibly important, of course. I also think that we need much more research and research is currently um, very difficult because the platform systematically discontinue any kind of uh, data access for public interest research, uh, always pointing at GDPR, which is in itself a myth that has been debunked many times. Uh, but yes, we need much more research to really um, be able to um, identify and measure the, the negative externalities of the platform's business model. And I think this is still, yeah, this is very difficult. But when you talk about um, improving user agency, basically empowering every single citizen to better navigate uh, online information, I again think that, yeah, it won't happen without regulation because the number one thing that we need, I think, is transparency for every single user. I need to be able to see who is targeting me based on what criteria, at what stage in the process I allegedly consented to the use of my data, and I have to be able to withdraw my consent. And uh, I need to know who is paying for information that I see and all of these things, uh, whether journalistic due diligence standards have been complied with, all of these things. Um, and therefore, against uh, again, I think uh, there is no way around a strong EU level uh, regulation. There is no way around strong EU regulation. Felix Kate, thank you so much for joining us, and um, best of luck in your endeavors on on these amazingly complex but very very important topics. Thank you, dear, dear listeners. Thanks for being with Brussels Bytes and the Martin Center. Follow us online, send us your feedback, and stay tuned to Brussels Bytes. That was today's episode of Brussels Bytes. 